very well. Thank you guys. Good to see you for our second of six weeks in this Personality of Sin series. I'll remind you what that is in just a bit, but let me announce some things that are coming up. One is our next newcomer's orientation. That's four weeks that we do three times a year during this hour. The next one will start on September the 10th. Now note that date. I've been announcing September the 3rd. It's going to, be the, it's going to start on the 10th. The reason for that is, turns out I'm going to be gone Labor Day weekend. So I won't be here that Sunday. So we're starting at the following week. Because I lead that class, we give you a notebook of material, and it gives you information about our church, what we believe, where we've come from, what we hope to accomplish in the future, why we do things the way we do, and it's a smaller setting, so you can ask any questions you may have. It doesn't obligate you to anything. It's informational and strictly so, so that you can make an informed decision about whether this would be the place for you to join in membership to serve and grow. So please make note of that. The date changed. It's the 10th rather than the 3rd. And then on the 20th of next month, September 20th, we resume our midweek program. Our midweek program uh, has ministries for all ages. So we have nursery and toddler, uh, but we also have uh, classes for our uh, preschool up through elementary, and then also junior high and senior high. And then we have adult classes as well. And I know that uh, two of those adult classes are going to be three. I know that two of them are going to be one, Master Plan for Life. That is one of our two core classes that we urge everybody to take. So if you've never taken Master Plan for Life, then that would be the class for you. I teach that one, and it is, uh, I call it a systematic theology for regular people. So it goes through the theological categories that most systematic theologies do, but we give you a notebook. I think our notebook is 285 pages worth. We give that to you. And then over uh, a 28-week period, 28 lessons, this semester and next semester, we go through that material. But it is foundational material, so I would encourage you to strongly consider taking that. Master Plan for Life. We're also going to have, though, a, a parenting class, Gospel-Centered Parenting. Last year we had Gospel-Centered gospel centered Marriage uh, on Sundays, but we're going to have gospel-centered parenting, and then a third class for anybody who doesn't fit into those two categories. You've already taken Master Plan for Life, or uh, you're not interested in the parenting class for whatever reason, you don't have children, your children are grown, whatever. So there will be a third class. I think that class is going to be uh, going through the Book of Romans, but we're talking to one of the seminary professors. We usually have one of the seminary professors from Detroit Baptist Seminary uh, do a class for us. So we're seeing if he's available for that. But that'll all start on September the 20th, Pioneer Club and Community Institute with those three classes. Pastor Larry mentioned during the first hour the change of time for that. We used to start that at, we've been doing it for years, at 7 o'clock for the kids program and teen program, 7.15, started the uh, adult classes, and everything finished at 8.15. So fairly late, if it's a school night by the time you get home. Hard to decide exactly is when starting too early is too early so that you can end earlier. So we're trying to move it. Six o'clock start, so quite a bit earlier, hour earlier. And uh, in the case of the adult classes, hour and 15 minutes earlier. And we're going to get finished at 7.30 though. 
So we'll be finished 45 minutes earlier. We hope that'll help our parents with the school night issue. For those that are going to be coming from work or from school to try to get here at 6 o'clock, we're going to offer food. We're going to go fetch the food and have it here for you. So the food will be here from 5 to 6. And you register to say, yes, I want the food for this given week. And every week, you let us know, and we'll have the food here. And every week, we'll have you know, a rotation of probably four things, subs, uh, pizza, tacos, Chick-fil-A, what, whatever. And uh, you'll pay something for that. I don't know what that something is. Probably about $5 a person, a maximum of $20 a family. That's kind of the way we've done these things in the past. But we're going to have it set up for you between 5 and 6. So whenever you blow in, it'll be there. And you can just, if you've registered for it, then you, can, you and your family can eat and then go to your, your classes. So we hope that'll work out. We're going to try it. We will, we will see. Our community groups uh, only have the current community groups that meet for two years, only have two meetings left, and then we're going to reconstitute the groups for another two years. Those will start on Sunday night, October the 1st, so for the next two months, you're going to hear us hawking that for you to register for, for those uh, so that you can be assigned to a group. If you can host a group, that would be great. You can let us know on the registration about that. That's at our website, cbctrenton.com. Where you, can, where you can do that. And then on October the 8th, just a couple months, we're going to send mailers around to all of 48183 Trenton and Woodhaven and Brownstown and invite folks to a series called God's Design for Sexuality. So think about somebody that might be interested in that. You could invite uh, to that kind of outreach uh, series. And then lastly, on November 5th, that's our next baptism. If you need to be baptized, if you've never been immersed, to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection, then uh, fill out our one-page application that you can pick up at the Welcome Center desk in the lobby. Uh, fill that out, give it to them, they'll get it to me, and we can go from there. All right, this is week number two of six in our Personalities of Sin a series. We gave out a one-page sheet last week, and we're continuing that this week. So everybody should have that one-page sheet. The guys were distributing them when you came in. Does everybody have? Does anybody need? a one-page sheet. We need one up here. Daniel, thank you. We've got a couple of them. Okay. We need one up here. Is that it? Everybody else has? All right. Very good. Thank you, Daniel. So God's purpose for humanity, God's purpose for you, God's purpose for me, you could summarize that in two words, uh, reflect and rule. God's purpose for humanity is for humanity to reflect Him and rule on His behalf. That's the reason the Bible teaches that God made humanity for those two things. Reflect Him and then rule on, on His behalf. So being made in the image of God is that reflection. We alone among God's creatures have the capacity to reflect God back to God, meaning that we can think God's thoughts after Him. We can think like God. We can talk like God. We can act like God. So we're reflecting His character back to Him. That's what the image of God is. We were made in the image of God, and we were made to continually reflect what He is like back to him. 
So we act, we talk, we think like God. Of course, we're not God, but we're like God in our character. That's what the image of God is. So first of all, we reflect. And then, having reflect, reflecting God back to God, made in His image, without any distortion of that, of that image, we are worthy and able to rule on His behalf. So you remember that he gave to our forefather Adam, we're all the children of Adam, and he told Adam that this is what you're to do. You are to subdue and you're to rule. That's what he made, he made us to do. And so we were to, uh, we were to be fruitful and multiply, and as the world expand, God's world expanded, humanity was to rule that with the character of God intact, reflecting him back to him, and then thus being worthy and able to rule on his behalf. So, how's that all going? Humanity ruling on God's behalf, do you think? So here's what Hebrews chapter 2 says about that. Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 5, excuse me, verse 6, here's how the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, there is a place where someone has testified. And then it's a quotation from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Psalms. So the writer of Hebrews is going to quote the book of Psalms, Psalm number 8 to be exact. But he says it in that weird way. There's a place where someone has testified. <laughs> But the place where they're testifying is, in fact, Psalm number 8. Take my word for it, okay? And here's what Psalm 8 says that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Now let me stop there for a minute. So what is man, what is humanity that you care for him, that you, God, acknowledge humanity? What's so special about humanity that you, God, should stoop to concern yourself with lowly creatures like us? But then the next line says, the son of man that you care for him. And when it says son of man there, I would guess that some of us get confused because Jesus is called the son of man. In fact, that's the most oft-used title for Jesus in the Gospels is son of man. Now, that idea of son of man is that he is of humanity. That's the idea. So son of God means he's of God. He has the character of God, the nature of God, and he also has the character of humanity, son of God and son of man, both. He's the God-man. So that's the most oft-used title. So here is it talking about Jesus as the son of man. It's not. It's, 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 remember, I, as I said in the first hour, if you were here, the Psalms are poetry. And as we're going to see as we go through the Psalms, one of the primary ways that Hebrew poetry is, is done is not through rhyming. That's kind of how we do poetry, right? We have the last word at the end of the line, rhyme. They don't do rhyming. They do parallelism. So one line will say something, and then the next line will be parallel to it in some way. And these two lines, notice 
In fact, how it's, if you have an NIV, it's actually laid out with the lines separated to show you this. The first line is, what is man that you are mindful of him? And now the second line is parallel to it. It's, it's saying the same thing in other words. What is the son of man that you care for him? Both of them are referring to humanity. So what's such a big deal about humanity? That's what the psalmist is asking. And then Psalm number 8 goes on, as quoted in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 2. You made him, humanity, a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. And verse 8 says, and put everything under his feet. That would be humanity. Crowned with glory and honor, with everything put under humanity's feet. So I wasn't blowing smoke when I said, we were made to rule. Adam was made to rule. We were made to rule. God says in Psalm number 8, now quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, why does God give regard to humanity? Because humanity is his special creation. Humanity's made in his image. Humanity was made to rule for him. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. And then verse 8 goes on to say, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. So just in case you're wondering, does he really mean everything? <laughs> he says, God left nothing that is, was not to be subject to humanity. And humanity's rule, of course, on God's behalf. God, humanity, everything else. That's the way it was supposed to be. So I ask, how's that going for us? How's that working out? Well, notice the next line. One of the great understatements in all of the Word of God. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting the psalmist to remind us what we were made for. But then they just throws in that line. But yet at present... Humanity is not doing what humanity was made for. We don't see humanity with everything subject to him. Well, why not? Well, you, you all know why not, right? Because of, because of sin. So because of sin, the reflection was marred. Remember I said two things, reflect and rule. And because of sin, the reflection was marred. And that reflection of God's character back to him that made us worthy and able to rule on his behalf has now been marred. It's now distorted. Humanity is not worthy to rule on God's behalf in the current circumstance. So what's God going to do about it? If anything... Next verse, verse 9. But, that is a great contrast. 
in contrast to all that, in contrast to what humanity was made to do, in contrast to the fact that at present we don't see that because man abdicated, but in contrast to that, thanks be to God, we see Jesus. What's God going to do about it? He's going to have a second Adam. Remember, that's who, that's who Jesus is. And it, second Adam's not quite accurate. <clears throat> He's the last Adam. <laughs> second could imply there's going to be a third. <laughs> He's the last Adam, okay? So there was the first Adam that represented us, failed. Here we are, not reflecting and thus not ruling. And you've got, though, Jesus, who's the last Adam, representing those who are in Him. And here's what verse 9 says. We see Jesus, and then notice these phrases. Have you heard this before? Made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. That's what was said about humanity, wasn't it? You made humanity a little lower than the angels, and you crown them with glory and honor. They messed up. That's my translation. So the last Adam now is going to take up where the first Adam messed up. And he's made a little lower than the angels, and he now is crowned with glory and honor. Why him? Why is Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Glad you asked, says the writer of Hebrews. Verse 9. Because, middle of verse 9, he suffered death. That's why, because. Why is he, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor? To do what we were originally made to do? Because he suffered death. Now, how has him suffering death, how is that connected to him being crowned with glory and honor? Here's how. In being in suffering death, Jesus obeyed God where the first Adam disobeyed God. Jesus came to earth with a mission. That mission was to redeem those that God had given him. And Jesus fulfilled his mission. He suffered, he came to die for redeem us. And he did so. And because he did so, he is now worthy, whereas the first Adam and all of the first Adam's children, that would be us, are not. So if you and I are going to get back to reflecting and ruling, it's going to require we are attached to Jesus. That we have a relationship with Jesus. We already have a relationship with the first Adam. We saw how that went. We need a relationship with the last Adam. The reason that Jesus has been exalted the reason that Jesus is the one who can carry out what we were made to do, but sin has caused us to abdicate, the reason he can do that is because he obeyed where we disobeyed. And he obeyed throughout his entire life. 
So that's when it says he tasted death. Death is at the end. I mean, that's the ob- to state the obvious. But there's everything that led up to Jesus' death that was a life of obedience, including obedience to death on a cross. Does that language sound familiar to anybody? And he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That would be Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, you have something very similar to what we have here. That he, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but rather came as a servant, came as humanity, and became obedient unto death, even death. When it says obedient unto death, obedient all the way and including death. So his entire life was a life of obedience, every last piece of it, which is what our lives were supposed to be. Jesus has fully succeeded, culminated in his obedience in his death. His resurrection shows that God the Father was completely pleased with the entirety of the life and obedient death of Jesus. And so he raised him from the dead. And that's what Philippians 2 says, isn't it? He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That's the end of verse 8, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Here's how verse 9 starts. starts, Therefore, because of that, because he was obedient his whole life, even to the point of an obedient death, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. So that Jesus will rule. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Right? So that's what you were made for. Reflect, rule. You messed it up. You're not reflecting, so you're not ruling. Jesus succeeded, and I say you, of course I include me. We messed it up. Jesus succeeded where we failed. And now, if we're attached to Jesus, if we have a relationship with Jesus, we have now the opportunity, not just the opportunity, but the guarantee that what we, humanity, were made for will actually come to fruition. We will rule. We will rule with Him. We will reign with Him. I look forward to the future when we, God's people, will reign with Jesus, reign with Him, because that's what humanity was made to do. So, but in the meantime, we've abdicated. That, if you belong to Christ, that ruling, that reflecting will happen. As I said last week, The Bible teaches it's inevitable for God's people, but it's not automatic. It's inevitable, but not automatic. You're involved in the process. You're involved in the process of Him renewing the reflection that has been lost. So God is in the process of conforming you and me to the image of Jesus. 
so that we can reflect again. And the idea should be that if you've walked with the Lord for 10 years, that now, 10 years later, you reflect Jesus back to Jesus more than you did 10 years ago. More than you did five years ago, more than you did last year, more than you did six months ago. We are to be involved in this inevitable but not automatic restoration project to the broken mirrors that we have become. We were supposed to reflect God. The mirrors are broken, therefore they're distorted. God's repairing them. He's involved in his repair project. You're to be, I'm to be involved with him in that. So what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from making strides, making progress to the restoration of what it is we were made for? Reflect and then ultimately rule. Sin is what caused us to abdicate and sin is what keeps us from having a full reflection of Christ back to God. And the writer of Hebrews addresses that. And what I'd like to do is get to, practically speaking, how sin in your life, how sin in my life, I prefer sin in your life, but, but how sin in our lives keeps us from doing this. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says famously in chapter 12, in verse 1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. All right, let me stop. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore. And every, you know, whenever you see that, it's connecting, right? So it's connecting to what goes before. This is the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore is connecting to chapter 11. Many of you know what chapter 11 is. Chapter 11 is known as Faith's Hall of Fame. Because if you read through chapter 11, it just gives a bunch of names. And it says, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Isaac. And so on. By faith, Noah. Names all of these people, and it names the things that God did through them because of faith. I remind you of what faith is in your New Testament. Anybody remember? What's faith? Belief. So you could substitute in faith's hall of fame by believing, by belief, they did. And then you get to the end of it, you start chapter 12, and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So that can sound like, and I have heard sermons to this effect, and, and maybe they're right, but I'll, I'll tell you why I don't think so. But that can sound like, You've got these people that have gone before, all of these heroes of the faith, and they are up there watching us. And they're the cloud of witnesses, and they're cheering us on in the race that we're running. They've already run their race and completed their race. They're cheering us on. And I don't think that for a couple of reasons. One reason is, you know, they're in heaven. And like, when I go to heaven... I don't want to be looking down on what y'all are doing, okay? Because that would be, wouldn't be quite hell, but maybe like a purgatory <laughs> or something. 
So when I get beamed up or when I get taken out of here, I don't want to really be seeing what's going, going on down here. Uh, so I, I don't think that's what's happening. And further, that idea of witnesses, that, um, that word, the Greek word that's translated witnesses is the same word for testimony in your New Testament. We're surrounded by this great company of testimonies. Marturion is the Greek word. We get martyr from it. Martyrs give testimony to the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ to the extent that they're willing to give their life. That's where that, so that developed, that word, to mean a test, your testimony. And so we are surrounded by such a great cloud of testimonies. So I think the testimonies are the things you saw in chapter 11. We're surrounded by this great company of testimonies that by belief, so-and-so did this, and by belief, they did that. And since we're surrounded by that, that ought to encourage us to do this, middle of verse 1. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. When you read what's going on in chapter 11 and you see what they did by belief, then that's designed to encourage you and me to throw off everything that hinders. When it says uh, everything that hinders, here's the Greek word, onkos. And we've got an English word, oncology. We get cancer from it. You go to an oncologist, right? And so uh, what, is, what is this idea that what do you go to an oncologist for? Because you've got a cancerous tumor. You've got, you've got a weight. That's the idea. You've got something that needs to be excised, something that needs to be removed. And that's what's being referred to here. Throw off. Cut off. Get rid of. Everything that hinders. Well, man, that could be a long list, couldn't it? And notice that these everything, these weights that you, you don't need that keep you from running the race as well as you could and should, they're not necessarily sin. And here's why I say that. Look at the verse again. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin. So it looks like you've got two things going on here. You've got stuff that hinders, stuff that just weighs you down, and you've got the sin. And both of them keep you, keep me, from running the race as efficiently as we could or should. So just think for a minute about weights, things that slow you down. They're not wrong but they're also unnecessary. They're distractions from what's most important. You could fit under that category everything that hinders. You could put under that priorities. <laughs> like what's most important, friend? What is most important in your life and the way you prioritize it? 
because you probably got stuff like I've got stuff that I don't need to have. It's not necessarily sin, but it doesn't need to be there. And if I get rid of it, I can invest myself into better things. So there's everything that hinders, but then there is the sin. And I am persuaded by the fact that verse 1 says, throw off the sin. You notice it says that, the sin? Because it could be without the definite article. The is the definite article. And it's called the definite article because it's modifying what follows in a definite way. It's saying there is, a, there is there's sin in general, but there's the sin. Definitely. And the writer of Hebrews supplies the article there. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. So what is the sin? And here's what I think the sin is. I think the sin that so easily entangles is the sin that gives rise to every other sin, namely unbelief. Why do I say unbelief? Because the whole book's about belief. Because the previous chapter was all about belief. By belief, they did this. By belief, they did that. Therefore, we should be motivated ourselves since we're surrounded by people who have done this. Then to get rid of all the junk that's not necessarily sin, but it keeps me, keeps you from prioritizing the things that God has given us to do in the short amount of time that we have on this earth, to be reconformed to His image, and so made able and worthy to rule for him. Get rid of that stuff and believe. Get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. And then it goes on to say, as you guys know, fix your eyes upon Jesus, run the race with patience that he has marked out for us, all of that. But that's all predicated on this idea. You're getting rid of the excess junk, not necessarily sin, and you are going to follow the example of those in Hebrews chapter 11 who believe. And I am saying that unbelief is the sin behind all the other sins. All right. So I have been babbling for about 30 minutes. And some of you are going, what is this babbler talking about? like they did with Paul in Acts chapter 17. It actually says that. What is this babbler, that's the word they use, talking about? Especially since I was here last week, and I know on the screen it says we're supposed to be talking about the personality of sin. And at the end of last week, he said, here's your homework assignment. Think about the characteristic ways in which you sin. So what does everything I've been saying up to this point have to do with that? Well, if you were here last week, you may remember that I said we sin, we each sin in different ways because of our differing personalities and our differing backgrounds, those two things. To put it another way, you could say because we, nature and nurture. We all sin, but we sin in different ways. And I'm making the case that 
Because we are persons made in the image of God with the capacity to think and to act and to feel, mind, will, and emotion, those are the faculties of personality, then you and I will have a, each of us a tendency to sin either in intellectual ways, volitional ways, or emotional ways. We're different. And I gave some examples, you may remember, uh, last week. I said that, you know, you could be somebody who naturally, in your personality, your sin is going to gravitate to the intellect. You're a know-it-all. You have to be the smartest guy or gal in the room. But then you got saved, and now you just became a know-it-all in the Bible. Notice, you just took the same nature into it. You're still doing the same stuff. You're just doing it with Christianese. And that's what too many people do. There's not, at a fundamental level, there's not a change that's actually occurred. Or if it's from volitional talking or doing. And I said, maybe when you got saved, you used to curse, but now you use your tongue for gossiping. So you go from one thing to something else, and that something else can look better after you become a Christian, but at a fundamental level, if we take a close look, sometimes it hasn't, it hasn't changed. So what does that have to do with unbelief? Because I'm saying when you sin with your intellect, when you sin with your volition, when you sin in your emotions, behind all of that is unbelief. So let's take the know-it-all. Why does a person think that they need to let everybody know how smart they are? All that. Why does somebody do that? Well, there's a word for that. We, I think we talked about it last week, pride, right? Okay, well, what's behind pride? You see, what's going on is you're trying to find, that person is trying to find their value, their identity, in their intellect. They want people to know it. They want people to value it. They want people to acknowledge it. And behind that is their desire for that to be valued and acknowledged. They're, they're looking for their value. They're looking for their identity in someone other than Jesus. To attach it to belief, here's what it means. You don't believe your identity in Jesus is good enough. And so you're creating your own identity. You're creating your own alternate identity. In fact, your own sinful identity. Because you're a show-off, and nobody likes you, by the way. I didn't know we had that many know-it-alls in here. I thought you guys might laugh at that. <laughs> But nobody likes to know it all, do they? And, but that's what, that's what this... And you can, you can make a very long list of ways that people do this. But behind it is a lack of belief in who our Lord is and how He's enough for us. 
Same thing with the same thing with the person who gossips. They used to curse, now they gossip. They use their tongue to gossip. Or slander. What is that? How's that tied to belief? It's tied to belief in that you don't believe God can take care of it. So I've got to take care of it by slandering somebody, by talking rather than humbly submitting it to God. Praying to God, there's this, there's this thing going on. Lord, I ask you to fix this, and I'm going to work within your framework and trust you to do your will in it. But if you don't believe that, you will take matters into your own hands and you will use your tongue accordingly. Behind it all, there is a lack of, of belief. Emotional sin. And I mentioned last week that contrary to popular opinion, there is such a thing that God tells us and commands us to pursue even certain kinds of feelings. And when we sin regularly in emotional ways, behind that is a lack of belief. I don't believe God loves me, for example. I don't believe God has my circumstances. I don't believe God is involved in and overseeing my circumstances. Any number of ways that that lack of belief can show up. So I asked you last week, as you left, identify your characteristic way of sinning. Anybody want to share? I'm kidding. You don't have to share. But I did hear several of you when you came in said, hey, I did my homework. Well, good, really, good for you for thinking about that. Do I tend to sin in intellectual ways? Do I tend to sin in volitional ways? Do I tend to sin in emotional ways, and we all do all three, but I'm talking about your characteristic dominant way of doing this. And then I'm suggesting that you think about the unbelief that's behind that, that's motivating that. What is it that I'm failing to believe about God that causes me to sin in that particular way? The page that you were given when you came in today or you brought back with you today, if you look uh, on Roman numeral 2, it says our personalities are developed by both nature and nurture. I have just dealt with point A there underneath that. By nature, we sin these three ways. And I'm saying underneath that, underneath the sin is the ultimate sin of unbelief. Now next, by nurture... We emulate what we observed and experienced. So that's what we're going to deal with next. There's what you're like. There's what I'm like. We're different. You sin, I sin, we sin differently because of our different personalities. So I hope you have worked at trying to identify yours and then try to identify what's, what's underneath it. Next week, we want to pursue this further by looking at, okay, what are the environmental factors that you brought into your Christian life? You brought that personality with you, and you also brought your nurture with you, the things that we observed and experienced. And what you want to do is, the reason we got suitcases up there is that's baggage, you want to get rid of your baggage. But you get rid of your baggage by identifying it first. So hopefully you've identified the personal 
nature stuff. We want to look at the environmental nurture stuff and see what's underlying that and go from there. Okay? Everybody good? So this week, you thought about your personality and the characteristic ways you sin. This week, think about your background. Think about your background. Think about what was modeled in front of you and how that has molded you and shaped you. In a lot of ways, it may have shaped you in very good ways. But in other ways, you are carrying with you some of the things you observed in people around you, people in your household, perhaps your parents. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for instructing us in Scripture for why you made us, what we're supposed to be. And you've given us a very clear instruction on that, that you made us to be like yourself, and you made us, as a result, to rule on your behalf. And as it stands now, because of sin, we are neither. But we thank you for the reclamation project that is redemption. We thank you for the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is actively doing in the lives of his people so that we can look at your word we can see that we fall short we desire to obey you please you be like you and so Lord we want to do the hard work of looking in the mirror and seeing what is there that ought not be seeing how it is that we are particularly wired in the ways we sin and rejecting the unbelief that underlies it and then this week, Lord, we want to think about the things that we've experienced and observed and caught that we brought with us into our Christian life and how we find ourselves saying things like, I'm just like my... And in many ways that may be good. In some ways, undoubtedly, because we are all sinners, it's not. So help us to take an accurate look. Think about that this week. Bring it back with us next week so, Lord, we can see the root of those problems, discard the baggage, and thereby be able to run the race that you've assigned to us. Grant us safety. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.